Well, the children, I believe, are going with Angie. So this morning, as we stay in here, we're going to open our Bibles today to John chapter 6, the Gospel of John in the 6th chapter is where we're opening today to read the text. We started a bit of a mini-series last week that we're going to continue into this week and into weeks to come. Last week, you may remember if you were here, we went into John chapter 4. A couple chapters now, we turn the page to the 6th chapter. But John chapter 4 was the story of Jesus and the woman of Samaria, also also referred to at times as the Samaritan woman or the woman at the well. And we saw in John chapter 4 that when Jesus offered her, as she was referring to the children, he offered her living water. Now you may remember that Jesus was traveling with the disciples from Judea to Galilee. We had an opportunity to look at a map. I think it's going to be back up here again behind me. You can see the course of the path that he would take going from Judea in the south as he's going to Galilee in the north. takes you, if you go due north, through Samaria. So that was Jesus' path that he was going. But the problem was, as you would mention to the children as well, is that when you went through Samaria, that means you were going to meet the Samaritans. And verse 9 reminded us and told us last week that the Jewish people typically did not have any association at all with those from Samaria, the Samaritans. There's a bit of a prejudice there that seemed to exist between both parties, the Jews and the Samaritans, one with the other. But we found in the text that Jesus broke the prejudice that seemingly existed and walked directly through Samaria and then spoke to the woman at the well. Now, Sheila told him again, the children, it was not customary for a Jewish rabbi especially to go out and speak in public to women, let alone a Samaritan woman. But he did so. And when he did, he asked her initially for a drink which in the conversation immediately confuses the woman because she knew herself there was no dealings that the Jewish people have with Samaritans and that a a male rabbi should not be talking to a woman, at least in public. So it confuses the woman. But she's even more confused when Jesus kind of turned the table. He turned the conversation from initially wanting a drink to him telling her that he could give her water. He was greatly confused, but we found later within the text in chapter 4, verse 10, that he told her then when she was confused about the water and how she could even have water. He said in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Again, a woman is never named. It's a nameless woman in the text. Her name is not important. It's more of a story. The situation's unfolding. But he tells her then in verse 14, when she begins to have some interest, he said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him or her will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We observe that woman was an outcast. But Jesus, in seeing that she was an outcast, disregarded it. I mean, Jesus offered her something he offers to every man, woman, and child. Living water. I mean, regardless of your race, your gender, your nationality, anything, none of that matters to Jesus. He is the living water that will quench any spiritual thirst that you have in life. And we concluded that only Jesus can satisfy you and meet your deep needs that you have in life. 
That was pretty much the story from John chapter 4. He did not say, I am the living water. We find today, though, as we get into John chapter 6, he definitely says, I am the bread of life. So we move now into our I am series, starting with John chapter 4. And he fell short of saying, I am living water, but he is the source to quench our spiritual thirst. And we see today then he does offer us eternal life. He is the bread of life. So stand with me today as we do so to entertain and receive the word of God. It's a more lengthy passage than last week. In fact, we're going to start in John chapter 6 in verse 22, which starts the I am the bread life narrative. We're going to read through verse 40, so it's more lengthy. We don't read all the narrative. It goes through verse 59, but we read a good portion of it, and it is longer than in prior weeks. So John chapter 6, we start in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered a boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. That's referring to the feeding of the 5,000, which occurred earlier in the chapter. So when the crowd, verse 24, saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? But Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Again, repeating to the feeding. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them then in verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Well, they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Then Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Oh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reading today of the text that begins to tell us, Lord, that Jesus is the source, not only of living water, but the bread of life. He offers us eternity. 
this text begins to reveal that to us today, Lord. And I pray then, as we go through the text today, that we would understand it and see how we can even apply it to the modern lives that we're living. We then ask the Spirit to lead and guide and direct us here today. That we receive it, Lord, and be thankful for what we will learn and what we can do to the Word. So thank you, Lord. What a blessing we have of reading your word today. And your son Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, the reading this morning, while a bit more lengthy certainly than last week, is only again, like I mentioned earlier, a small portion of the entire discourse. I mentioned earlier how the Bread of Life discourse begins in verse 22 where we had our reading. But it goes all the way through verse 59. So there's still a portion of it that we have yet not read. And maybe you can read again later. Now, the entire chapter is 71 verses in length. We didn't come close to that. But the important part that we've talked for today is then the portion that reveals that Jesus is the bread of life. And notice then, as he talks about him being the bread of life, it's a metaphor that he's using. I mean, in some ways, if you will, it's similar to the living water that he referred to last week in John chapter 4. But yet, as I mentioned earlier, it's something profoundly different. I mean, when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman at the well, I mean, it's one thing to say to her that he can offer her living water. But now in chapter 6, it's a little bit different. It's kind of like profoundly different to me when he distinctly says to everybody listening, I am the bread of life. I mean, just a reminder, I mean, we're on a series now to talk about seven different statements when Jesus tells people, I am. So let's review them once more. Now, all these, of course, are we going to talk about today, but here they are. Again, we're talking today in John 6.35 about I am the bread of life. In weeks to come, we will see, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the gate or the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And eventually in chapter 15, I am the true vine. Seven different times. It was Jesus in the gospel of John. Only is it written in John's gospel where Jesus says to the people, and then John records for all eternity, for all of history, where he says, I am. All very powerful truths that we'll expand upon. But notice as we key on two words this morning. I am. Jesus tells people, I am. Now, when you begin to process that to fully understand that we have to go back to the Old Testament. So let's do that for just a moment. If we go any further in the Gospel of John, let's turn to Exodus chapter 3 and find out where originally the words I am stemmed from and came from. Because in Exodus chapter 3, you find then that Moses is having the burning bush moment. And he's commissioned by God to free the Israelites from their bondage. So in chapter 3, verse 10, God essentially tells Moses, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, then Moses begins to process this, right? And he begins to think, well, what if they ask me who sent me? Which is the essence of verse 13. Moses begins to respond and think. He says, if I, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, 
the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What's well, a good question? But God tells him in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, that I am has sent me to you. And there it is. I mean, Jesus is now then, here's where the I am begins to originate. It is God. It is Yahweh. It's the most powerful God ever. There are little G-gods, but this is the God I am. And he's, Now, Jesus then, fast forwarding to the New Testament, fast forwarding to the day he's speaking to the people, he says, I am. It's powerful. I am the bread of life. It's a throwback to what was said back during the Exodus. The people should know that. You would think they would know. It's a powerful moment when he uses those same words, those same two words, I am. But it seems the people do not understand. As you go back to the text, we refer to how this is on the heels of the feeding of the 5,000. So the audience has been following Jesus. Obviously, people do all the time. Throughout the New Testament, it's quite common. They've been following him for quite some time. And now they've had their miraculous feeding. They're feeding the 5,000. You know, there's two loaves. I mean, there's two, there's two fish and five loaves of bread. That is miraculous that 5,000, well, 5,000 is mentioned, probably referring to men. So it could have been counting men and women, even more than 5,000. So it's quite a miracle. It's quite something that's happened. But that in turn then prompts them to even ask for a bigger miracle. I mean, you notice in verses 26 through 31, to maybe put it in, in the synopsis, they ask him for a bigger miracle referring to the manna that came back during the Exodus. So if they're referring to the manna that came during the Exodus, shouldn't they hear and recognize the words, I am? But they miss it. And Jesus responds that he, he knows this. I mean, he notices that it seems that they are merely drawn to him for the signs and wonder, rather than truly for himself. And Jesus sees through that selfishness. And he tells them in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your filled the loaves. Again, you're feeding, referring to the, the 5,000, the meat feeding the 5,000. Now, but we should stop here for a moment and remind ourselves that the miracles performed, the signs and wonders by Jesus was always to draw the people to the Son, to God. I mean, it was not meant for people to go away in amazement and wonder and demand more signs and miracles. It was never for that. It was to draw them to the Son of God. And the people then began to demand more signs and wonders. And then Jesus tells them, verse 27, they need to seek the Son of Man. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Well, I'm sure at this point they're probably a little bit perplexed. So they just simply ask in verse 28, what shall we do? What must we do? So he tells them matter-of-factly, point of blank in verse 29, believe in him who has sent. Believe in him who God has sent. I mean, to some of the entire early portion of the discourse, 
What we find is that the miracle of the loaves and the mention and the manna by the people provides the Lord an opportunity to discuss the object of faith, which allows him then in verse 35 to tell them, I am the object. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now what's noteworthy here is that this is the first time that Jesus is saying any I am statement. And it's not only the first time he says it now in John chapter 6, but he says it four times. We didn't read the entire discourse. No, you can later. But you're going to notice he says it now in verse 35. He says it again repetitiously in verse 41, then again in verse 48, and then finally in verse 51. So four times Jesus tells the people, I am the bread of life. And each and every time he tells them, it's extremely important. I mean, repetition is maybe the point here in that he's making the reference to the fact that he is the bread of life. And the repetition then provides a lesson. In similar fashion to Jesus being living water, many people, though, even though he says it four times, they fail to understand. So it leaves us then with two powerful principles or truths or application points for today. And the first one is this. That physical food in our lives is necessary, but it can be short-lived. But spiritual food leads to eternal life. Spiritual food offered by Jesus can lead to eternal life. I mean, in very simplistic terms, everyone, no one seems to be exempt from what I can find in life. Everyone needs bread and water. Bread is physical food, and we need water to be absolutely essential for survival. Everybody needs bread and water. I can think back to my childhood when I was watching TV, and it seems like during the early years of TV, you know, you got three channels pretty much, right? You didn't get these 150, 250 channels of today, which you, you can watch 250 channels today and still get nothing. I mean, back then we had three channels. You had to actually turn your antenna to even get those three and clearly, which if you were me, you know, my dad says, Kirk, go out there and change the arrow so we could be antenna so we could get the channel. And then actually at late at night, it would go off the air. Now they never go off the air. And it's garbage. But in those days, whatever channel you may have been watching, you may have got something of a war movie to be displayed. At least when I was growing up. And I would watch then those war movies, Cowboys and whatever it was. And you've seen then when the people were captured, they got rations. What did they get for rations when they were in prison? They got bread and water. It was their daily provision. But the Geneva Convention later came along and said, hey, prisoners need more than bread and water. It was made actually in 1929, revised in 1949. Here's what it says in the Geneva Convention, Article 26. The basic daily food rations shall be sufficient in quantity, quality, and variety to keep prisoners of war in good health and to prevent weight loss or development of nutritional deficiencies. Which means it's got to be more than bread and water. But sometimes on TV, if you're watching it, it would be bread, it would be some water. But all that to say this then, that it seems that nearly in everyone's diet, including in prisoners of war, 
bread as a staple commodity. We have to have it. We need something. As we do need water. We need food, but we also need water. But bread seems to be a commodity for all of us to have at some point in life. I mean, observe then how bread quickly disappears off the shelves of the grocery store. If there's a threat of bad weather, people will go and get some bread. And I don't understand why they always get milk and eggs and some other stuff too, because if the lights go out and the power goes off, you can't keep those things. But you can keep some bread. You can get some peanut butter and jelly. And you can get some bread. You can have some dinner. I like peanut butter and jelly. But they got to have bread. They got, I mean, so bread is a necessity. It's a commodity. We enjoy it. As is water. And water is a necessity. In fact, it's been proven our bodies can go longer without food than it can without water. And notice then how water also disappears at an alarming rate during any time of natural disaster or anything that begins to occur in life. So we have to have bread and we have to have water. So then not coincidentally, Jesus, in the way of a metaphor, utilizes the very things that we need to keep us alive, the bread and the water. And then he, Jesus, is tells us. He tells us. He uses the metaphor to tell us we need bread and water, but he tells us further than that we need him to be the bread and the water for us to have eternal lives. And Jesus told the Samaritan woman that he could provide living water in John chapter 4, verse 14. And now we see him telling the crowds of Capernaum that he himself is the true bread for eternal life in John 6.35. His message sounds so simple. He uses a metaphor to make a point. I mean, he deals with the basic necessities of life, but it's difficult for the people to understand its meaning. In fact, the people around him just almost misunderstood it. They didn't get it. Like the Samaritan woman, she didn't get it at first. But it seems that's not just an old day biblical phenomenon. And it seems a lot has not changed today. People today can hear that Jesus is the bread of life and still go about scratching their head in absolute wonderment of what it means. I am the bread of life. You said Jesus is the bread of life. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it means. And it's not overly complicated at all. I mean, it's, stated, it's a metaphor. It's an analogy. I mean, it means that people eat bread to satisfy their physical hunger and then to sustain physical life. But we have more in life than physical hunger. We have a spiritual aspect that also has to be filled. And we must be fed. And the only way we can satisfy that spiritual hunger we have within and sustain it to spiritual life is only by having the right relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the only way it can happen. As a man, it's a truth. That's a principle. It's a fact. That the only way for us to be spiritually fed is through Jesus. So no wonder he can call himself the bread of life. I mean, maybe the point is the bread must be eaten to sustain life, yes. And Christ must be invited into our daily walk, our hearts, 
to sustain spiritual life, to satisfy, to fulfill, to meet our spiritual needs and hunger. The first point of application is that physical food is short-lived, but spiritual food leads to eternal life. And we must invite Christ into our life because only Jesus saves, which then leads then to the second principle from the text. That one who comes to Jesus for salvation will by no means be driven away. Notice in verse 36, it alludes to the people in the audience, the primarily they're Jews. It's a Jewish audience primarily. And we're actually looking at Jesus. And notice they're face to face. We don't have the luxury of seeing Jesus face to face, but there with Jesus and the Jewish audience all together, he also Jew, and they're seeing face to face, but they don't, they're not believing. Verse 36, I said to you, you have seen me and yet do not believe. So he adds in verse 37, that all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, stop, if we're stopping here for just a moment and just interjecting this. That God does not want any person, any man, woman, child to perish. As mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all would reach repentance. It's also referred to in 1 Timothy 2.4. He was all men, women, children to know the truth. He said, this is good and this pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people, notice all people, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. If you come to Jesus, he's not going to cast you out. If you truly, sincerely come to Jesus, he will receive you. Remember last week, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, she was cast out by society. She had multiple husbands. She was drawn to come to the water at what was recorded in the scripture as the sixth hour. Now, we refer to that as noon. So she came in a time when women don't customarily come to draw water. Normally, they would go early in the morning. But she came later in the day because she's cast out of society. She's not in their group. She's a despised woman by the others. Not only is she a woman, she's a Samaritan, so she's now seen despised even by the Jewish people. But Jesus did not see her in any other way but being fit for the kingdom. He did not see her as unfit for the kingdom. He welcomed her. He did not cast her out. In John chapter 8, similarly, when the adulterous woman is brought before Jesus, again, Jesus, although the Pharisees were ready to stone, Jesus again did not reject her. In John chapter 5, when the impotent man laid by the pool of Bethesda, every day being rejected by society, he's waiting. He, every day he would lay by the pool waiting for someone to put him into what they thought was the healing waters. One day Jesus walked up told him to rise, pick up his mat, and walk away. Jesus accepted him rather than rejected him. Society rejected these people, but Jesus accepted them. He welcomed them. And we see evidence all throughout the gospel 
that Jesus welcomes the society outcast, those rejects that we sometimes find that people are left alone. Sheila talked about the children and how you have someone by themselves at school eating lunch, sometimes thought of as a reject, an outcast. Jesus accepts the brokenhearted. He welcomes them. In short, he opens his arms. He extends out his hand to receive them. In essence, Jesus welcomes the sinner, which is all of us. He welcomes anyone like you and me. He does not turn any away. Now, as noted in verse 38, Jesus, God's one and only Son, came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And when what is the will of the one who sent him? What is the will of the Father in heaven? Jesus makes it abundantly clear in verse 39 and 40, particularly verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone, there it is again, everyone, all people, who looks on the Son and believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It tells us, our point, our point, our principle, that one who comes to Jesus for salvation, truly, honestly, sincerely, in their heart, will by no means be driven away. And that's great news. That's good news. Because Jesus accepts us as we are. I mean, every one of us in this room looks different. It's probably a good thing not everybody can look as good as I do. Because if we all look alike, and, and you know, Jesus doesn't want that. We all have different talent, we all have different gifts, we all look different. But you're beautiful. You are. And Jesus will accept you just as you are. No matter what you look like, no matter what you dress like, no matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter. Jesus accepts you as you are. Jesus, as the Son, did not work independently of God, but rather in union with Him. And that should give us assurance of being welcomed into God's presence and to be protected by Him. So just be sure to see this, that Jesus' purpose was to do the will of the Father, not to satisfy the onlookers who are demanding more signs and miracles. Jesus came to do the will of the Father, to accept us as we are. Now be careful here, because Jesus did not come to be a genie. He did not come to meet every demand in which we may have in life. But rather, most importantly, what we can recognize, as mentioned in John chapter 3, verse 17, that Jesus came to save everyone, me and you. There's no outcast. He came to save, because Jesus is the bread of life. He is the bread of life, not just a source of abundant life on earth. But unfortunately, many people, as you go into the text and read later, unfortunately, you find that many of the people actually at this point, as they're walking with Jesus, following Jesus, they'll turn and leave. I mean, perhaps it's Safe to say, as we link then what's happening back again to the earlier part of John with the feeding of 5,000, maybe it's safe to say that perhaps these people who are following Jesus not only look for signs and wonders and miracles, 
but they were interested more in a free meal than a free salvation that he offered. Think about that a moment. Why are we following Jesus? Are we looking for him to fulfill some sort of thing in life? Are we looking for Jesus to meet particular need? Or are we just simply coming to Jesus to follow him? Truly let him be our Lord and Savior. To recognize he is the source of living water. He is the bread of life. The people here, perhaps in the text, that began to leave Jesus is simply more interested in the signs and wonders and maybe that miraculous feeding once more than truly the salvation of the offers. And then we have begun to process that we should recognize that we need to make a decision to follow Jesus, not for the miracle, but rather for his sacrifice that restores us then to right standing before God. So then what must we do? Well, verse 29 again reminds everyone simply what they must do. That you must believe. You must believe. He truly is the Son of God. And He come and died for you. He has risen again. He tells His audience. His audience gets to see Him. And He tells His audience you must believe in whom was sent. I am He. Now, the thing that becomes more difficult in our time, our lives, is we got to believe without seeing. I mean, it's the essence of the definition of faith that's written in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. We have to believe without seeing. But irregardless, the truth is this, that anyone, anyone who looks by faith and believes on Jesus for salvation, that he truly is the Son of God, he died on the cross for me. He has risen again. Every person can have their destiny secured to have eternal life in heaven with the Father. Anyone, anyone who makes a sincere commitment to believe Jesus Christ as Savior is secure in God's promise of eternal life. Again, we find verse 40. He says that we may have everlasting life, eternal life, and it will raise him, her, you up on the last day. But simply again reminds us, for those who put their faith in Christ, we will be resurrected from physical death to eternal life with God when Christ comes again. What a glorious day that shall be. So maybe the only question left to ask here today is for us to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, are you secure? Have you received the living water? Do you recognize the bread of life to sustain your spiritual hunger? Is your destiny set? Is your destiny set? You must be sure. Because if you're unsure, recognize your destiny is still set. It's just not maybe what you think it is. Every Wednesday evening, we meet here and we go through the book of Revelation. We before last, we finished Revelation chapter 16, which told us then of the seven bowls of God's wrath, where the angel pours upon the earth. And there is some horrific, 
horrific devastation being placed upon the earth at that particular time for the last seven years. For people who survive it, they curse God. Their destiny is set. Their destiny is hell. They may think that is hell on earth, and it might be for them, but they have really not experienced the hell talked about and referred to in the Bible because it's torment and anguish forever. So we must be sure that we are secure, and we must be sure that our destiny is set. Because if we're unsure somehow, well, our destiny is still set. And it's in that place of anguish and torment. And we should not want that for anyone, for ourselves or anyone. So today, then, be sure of your destiny. Be sure you're set. Be sure that you receive the living water and the bread of life. Accept it. Accept Jesus as your Lord. Father, Lord, we thank you for this message today. It speaks to us of the great I am, the source of water, the source of life, the source that we need, Lord, to sustain us through not just life, Lord, but in all life of eternity. We're thankful, Lord, for how this passage today can point us to truth, that you are the single object in life that we truly need and must have. Yes, Lord, because life the demand times of nutrition. We need that as well. But Lord, for spiritual satisfaction, there is none we need other than you. So I pray, Lord, that all of us receive that here today. And that we receive that in its full, in its entirety. And we leave here today, Lord, certainly know that our destiny is set. The time when you call us forward, the time when our earth is done, we know that we shall see you. We shall see you, Lord. Because you've taken our place on the cross. You've reconciled us to the mighty God. To the blood you shed. Let's be thankful for that here today. And that somehow, some way, we've never received it. Let's receive that today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us that. In Jesus' name we pray.